Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. By confession, my diet, what I eat, is far too narrow. Far too narrow. I typically eat food with a color spectrum of yellow to brown. Anyone else? (laughs) Sometimes dark brown if it cooks too long. Uh, This hit me the other day when Josie, my wife, and I were waiting to order at Brassica. They serve this delicious Mediterranean food, and as you grab your food, you're almost blinded by the colors on your plate. And I saw this almost as a rebuke against my drab diet. Uh, I realized my diet is way too narrow, but the same could be said, if I'm honest, about my spiritual diet. See, I'm typically drawn to thoughts about God. I'm typically drawn to ideas about God, to worship God with my mind, which is vital. But what if God, the question I'm asking, intended that his people be fed with more than ideas, not just? What if God built us even to engage him with our emotions? What if God built us to engage him with our imaginations, with our bodies? Well, if brassica is a rebuke to my limited diet and even an invitation to experience more flavors, more smells, the Psalms are a rebuke to our limited approaches to God. And even more, an invitation to engage God in his world with so much more. See, many point out that the Psalms... They don't really teach us anything that we couldn't learn in other parts of our Bibles. But they do invite us to experience those truths, to experience them with our imaginations, to sing them forth with our bodies, to experience God's truth with our bodies, like in, in, in emotions, things like disgust and delight and even near despair. I don't know about you, but this is uncomfortable territory for me. My Christian story is deeply rooted in deep thinking, which too often means avoiding deep feeling. Those of you who know me, the irony is that I love music, I love poetry, both emotionally expressive things. I just have never connected the dots with my faith. But the good news is God does it for me. It's the Psalms. It's the Psalms. So let's just first ask this morning what the Psalms are. Then we're going to ask together what the Psalms mean for us. How they can even change your life. And so first let's just define the Psalms. The Psalms I want to say this morning are at least three things. The first thing is Psalms are poetry. They're poems. Now humans use words to communicate with each other. Right? I'm going to say a lot of obvious things this morning, but it's important to refresh. We use words in different ways also. It all depends on what we want to accomplish with those words. 
So sometimes we give instructions with mechanical precision. Any engineers out there, doctors? We use words with mechanical precision. And sometimes we tell stories. And sometimes we write poetry or sing music. So here's three different books. Here's a cookbook. Here's a history book. Here's a poetry book. These three different uses of words are all using language in unique ways for unique purposes. And the Bible is the same way. That's what I want to say. The Bible is the same way. It uses language in different ways. We'll get to that in a minute. It uses language in different ways. So, one, one poet I know compares poetry to a bike wheel. And the use of words are like the spokes on that wheel. They're taut and they're purposeful. Nothing in a poem is filler. So the great British wordsmith Oscar Wilde once admitted that he spent an entire day deliberating the use of one comma. And here's a quote. I spent all morning putting in a comma and all afternoon taking it out. Poets are very deliberate with their words. Now what is in a poet's toolbox? One Old Testament scholar, Richard Pratt, makes a list. Exaggeration is in their toolbox. Symbolism. This is this equals that. Symbolism. Metaphors. This is that. Similes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, similes. This is like that. Metonyms. When we call something like the presidency the White House. Synecdoche. Oh, I'm sorry. Synecdoches. That's like when you say, I have mouths to feed. Sarcasm and irony. That's when you say good job when you really mean bad job. (laughs) Indirect communication. This is always indirect communication. There are ways that we say something indirectly. We don't say something on the nose. We say it like the quote Emily Dickinson. We say it slant. Because oftentimes truths need to come through the back door or the side entrance for them to stay put. But that's not all poets use. Poets organize these words into shapes, into structures. They organize these words, as we know, into beats like music. And yes, even with rhyme. And so the first thing we might think of when it comes to poetry is rhyme. Right? But this is where biblical poetry, like the Psalms, are a bit different than the poetry that we may be used to. Uh, The Bible uses what scholars call thought rhyme. Thought rhyme. So the Hebrew words, they don't sound alike all of the time. Most of the time, Hebrew words use similar concepts. The words behind the words rhyme. And so when you read the Psalms, you should pay attention to the lines that are side by side. They're called parallels or or couplets. These two lines that are side by side. And the author, the poet, is putting these words or these lines together on purpose in in a rhymeful way. Of course, not to our ears, but to the sense of the words. In a rhymeful way. So one author uses Psalm 1 to illustrate. Two lines can 
rhyme with, for instance, contrast. So verse 6 of chapter 1 of the Psalms, which we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at in a moment, they rhyme with contrast. For the Lord watches over the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked lead to destruction. These are two thought rhymes that are contrasting and clashing. Or they can also rhyme with compliment. So these two lines complement each other by sometimes repeating the same thing in a different way. So verse 1 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way as sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. That's just saying the same thing in three different ways. Or by building the thought in verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So you see what the poet is doing here. Whose delight is in the law of the Lord, which is to say, who meditates on his law day and night. They're building the thought. Or sometimes poets pile up the thought in Hebrew poetry. So we have this from Psalm 93, verse 3. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. And it's kind of like, like waves themselves crashing down three different times. Here's the point. The Psalms love to put two lines together to create an explosion of meaning. The math of thought rhyme is 1 plus 1 equals 5. This line plus this line equals something far bigger than the sum of its parts, and it's glorious. It's also, by the way, very missional of God. What do I mean? Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner reminds us that normal rhyme, which uses the sound of words, cannot be translated into other languages very well. That's why reading like an English translation of the Spanish poet Pablo Neruda doesn't work. It just doesn't work. People try it in different languages as well, but it's not the same as reading it in the same language and hearing the Spanish rhyme. But since the Bible rhymes with the words beneath the words, since the Bible rhymes with the ideas, the concepts underneath the words, they don't need the sound for translation, which means... They can be translated into every language without missing out on any of its richness. I love this about the Lord because nobody is left out. And God gets the glory. Win-win. Now, why is poetry in the Bible important? Well, we will explore this later, but I like what Richard Pratt says. Rather than speaking plainly about a matter, biblical poets often lead their readers into an imaginative sensory experiences of their topics. God doesn't just give us brains. He gave us, he gave us bodies. He gave us imaginations. He gave us emotions. And the Psalms mean His Word engages all of that and more. Neuroscientist Kurt Thompson says, poetry has three benefits to humans from a neurological standpoint. They're rhythmic. I've heard therapists recommend drum lessons for the healing of trauma. It is so kind that God gives us rhythmic language in the Bible that speaks of His grace. Biblical poetry is surprising. Thompson writes, 
Quote, our imaginations are invigorated when our usual linear expectation of prose doesn't apply. And this can stimulate buried emotional states and layers of memory. End quote. That also is kind of the Lord. And finally, he writes, they are integrated. They engage both left and right brain. The language is left brain. The imagery is right brain. And the integration is crucial. This is how God made us. And yes, it is kind that the Lord engages us in this way. The Psalms are poems. And that is good news. What else are the Psalms? The Psalms are songs. They're not just poems. They are also poems meant to be sung. Psalms, the book title itself comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means song. In fact, the book of Psalms probably shouldn't be viewed as a book of poetry so much as a hymn book or a book of songs. Because whenever I think about a book of poetry, I just think about sitting quietly in my room and sort of ruminating on the words in silence in my brain. Which is a terrible way to read a poem, I would We'll get to that. You should read it out loud. It's meant to be reverberating in your chest. The rhythms and the sounds are meant to be heard. Well, so also with the Psalms, they're meant to be sung. They're meant to be sung in community. They're meant to be sung by yourself. They're meant to be expressed fully. And so you'll notice in the book of Psalms that they're lyrics, and there's all kinds of musical instructions throughout it. So to the tune of, or things like Salah, which nobody really knows what that means, but scholars think it's a musical term, or a direction from, for, for singing. And then it often gives the author of the psalm, so King David for 73 of these things. King David, Solomon for two of them. The sons of Korah have 12 psalms to their name. Asaph has 12 psalms to their name. Heman, Ethan, even Moses, Psalm 90. We should sing them. And at the very least, we should read them out loud in our devotion and in our worship. Which takes us to the third definition of psalms. Prayers. The psalms are poems and songs, but they're not just poems and psalms. They are poems and psalms meant to be directed towards the triune God. They're worship. Ultimately, the Psalms are prayer. And they were used in the ancient context as and for gathered worship. The Psalms are prayers in song form. So my favorite musician, Julian Lodge, he once compared his music to prayer. And even though I'm pretty sure he doesn't mean prayer to our triune God, it still is a beautiful expression. And it's a beautiful admission even. That music at its best is not for self-aggrandizement. The music at its best is not to show off. Music at its best is an offering. And this is the Psalms. Our singing is praying. Scholars have divided this, uh, the prayers of the Psalms into different themes. So my former Old Testament professor uses this. And he gives some examples next to it. Psalms of lament, praise, thanksgiving, celebration, psalms of wisdom, psalms of confidence, royal psalms that speak of 
royalty that God would use to bless the nations, historical songs, recounting God's faithfulness in the past, prophetic songs, songs that sort of call out God's people so that we could walk in paths of life. And when I see this list, when I see this list, I think two things. I don't know about you, but I think two things. Number one, God desires a diversity of prayer from His people. This is a far wider bandwidth of prayer language than I am far than I am comfortable with. But the second thing I see when I look at this list is that God desires all of me. He desires all of me. And so to just take one example, we'll go at the very, very tippy top there with lament. The raw, untidy prayers of lament in our Bible. And so, for example, Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or Psalm 88. It ends this way. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. I'm pretty sure if a modern worship uh, songwriter wrote Psalm 88 today, it wouldn't ever get airplay, ever. In fact, people would probably pull the psalmist aside and say, hey, listen, this sounds all godly and everything. It's not happy enough. It doesn't end well. And then that person would say, I'm actually quoting Psalm 88. And then, and then the other person would say, I don't care. <laughs> I need happy. I need happy in my church. But God says differently. God says differently. Our prayers, I think, are too narrow. And this list, I think this list, as I look at it, it's like a buffet of brassica. It's a rebuke and it's an invitation. It's a rebuke to my narrow prayer life, and yet it's an invitation from God for more. Our prayers are too narrow. Our prayers are too predictable when we compare them to the diversity of God's given hymn book. Think about that. These are what God wants you to have on your lips and reverberating in your heart and in your chest. This is God's desire. God wants his people to sing Psalm 88. Darkness is my only friend. He wants that on your lips. He wants you to say, how long, O Lord? He also wants you to sing, Hallelujah. Praise your name. And so if you thought that God only wants polished and tidy and nice and unoffensive prayers, then the Psalms show you different. Don't they? The Psalms, what are they? They're poems. They're songs. But ultimately they're prayers. I just want to briefly see this in the first Psalm this morning. The first Psalm this morning, Psalm 1. Readers across history think this psalm, Psalm 1, is actually the intro to the entire book of Psalms. And the reason they think that is because there are no sort of author notes underneath it. Usually you see some small notes underneath it. And so because of that, folks think that this was like, as one ancient, this is an ancient translator, Jerome. Jerome actually called this the front door to a massive building. And it's a great image. It's a great image because Jerome is saying, you cannot enter this cathedral that is called the Psalms unless and only you walk through Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Just allow the imagery to do its work. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers, 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates or chews like cud day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind blows away. So in those days, you would take the wheat at a high place where there's wind, and the wind was strong. Be like a stone flat plateau, the threshing floor. And you would take the wheat, and you would lift it into the air, and what would happen? The wind would blow away the chaff as the substantial wheat fell to the ground. The wicked are like chaff the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way, the path of the righteous, but the way, the path of the wicked will perish. So we see all three, three things in this one song. Psalm 1 is clearly a poem. It's got a poetic structure, so it's got an A, B, C, B, A structure, which is kind of a thought sandwich. So the beginning and the end match, the, the sort of near beginning and near end match, and the very center is kind of like the meat in the sandwich, the very kind of explosion of meaning. And so at the beginning you have sort of blessed be, and at the end you have perishing, blessing and perishing as a contrast, and then sort of the, the, the sort of near end and near beginning, standing in the way of, uh, of sinners and standing in the judgment. And then right in the middle you have a rooted tree versus chaff-blown wheat. Rootedness and the epitome of lightweight. And as we saw, it's, all, it's full of all kinds of thought rhymes. Contrasts and compliments as the lines go on. And the imagery is unforgettable. So verse 1 slows down from walking to standing to sitting. And as scholar Derek Kinder points out, this verse is also a robust picture of what it means to be human. Taking counsel. That's your mind. Your thoughts. Walking in a way or a path. That's your behavior. Your actions. And sitting with others. That's your identification. That's who you are. And then right in the middle is this image of a fruit-bearing tree compared to a person threshing wheat in the wind. God says, if you want in my building, you have to walk through this psalm with your imagination. Second Psalm 1 is a song. Remember, a poem is not meant to be read in quiet. It is a song to be sung, to reverberate in your mind and in your chest. And the prelude to the entire songbook of Israel's songbook, of his worship, God says, if you want into my house, you have to sing. And then finally, this psalm is clearly a prayer. This psalm presents two ways or two paths. One is a path of self-reliance. One is a path of reliance upon God. So the path that you walk of self-reliance ends the way it begins. It ends with yourself. And therefore, this person is not able to stand in the judgment. If we're just standing on our own and by our own resources, we blow away in the wind like chaff. We're not weighty enough in our sin. God's perfect judgment renders even our best moral behavior as chaff. 
But the path of reliance upon God in Psalm 1 leads to life. This person delights in God's gracious ways. Delights in the law, which includes forgiveness for sin. This person is well watered. This person is fruit bearing. This person is, to quote one pastor, evergreen. And in the end, they stand, not because they know God, but what does it say? They are known. He knows our way. God knows. And ultimately, therefore, they stand upright in the judgment because they stand in His way. Ancient commentators of Psalm 1 cannot help but draw the conclusion that Psalm 1, this side of the incarnation and ministry of Jesus, is actually described in who himself said he is the way. The evergreen tree, Jesus, who delights perfectly in God's law, who was blessed because he was beatitude in the flesh. If this describes the faithful Israelite, who is Jesus, friends? Capital F, faithful. The faithful Israelite. The way, the truth, and the life. The way in flesh. See, the Psalms are ultimately prayers because they ultimately are fulfilled and point to Jesus. And yes, if we are to stand and not blow away like chaff in the judgment, it is precisely because God knows us in the way, which is, of course, Jesus. And we're standing in Him. And He gives us weight. And he plants us next to water. God says, if you want in this building, you must pray in Jesus' name. The Psalms are songs, they're poems, and they're prayers, they're worship. I want to close our time by asking a simple question What does this mean for you? What could the Psalms mean in your walk with God? You can even ask yourself right now, what role do they play currently? And consider with me how God might be inviting you to feast on what He has given us. What does this mean? I think without the Psalms in our life, we're like kids playing a board game with like half the rule set. Have you ever done that before? You're playing a game, and then you realize after you played it, we played that wrong. <laughs> That, that wasn't very fun. I mean, it worked, but something's missing. And then someone comes in who's very familiar with the game and says, you, like, you missed the whole like, second half of the instructions. Well, that's like the Lord with the songs. The Lord comes in and says, you are missing out. I mean, what you're doing is fine. It works, but you are missing out. There's so much more to walking with me than you realize. And I want you to think, therefore, of the Psalms as two permissions from God. The Psalms are permission, first, to feel. The Psalms require your emotions. And that is good news for some of us. For some of us, that's a challenge. They require your emotions, and not just the happy ones, as we saw, Psalm 88 
takes us to the edge of despair, but no further. A third of the Psalms are laments. There's, within the Psalms, a lot of them make us uncomfortable, and we skip over them. Especially the cries for vengeance against enemies. You know what I'm talking about. Well, I love this from Derek Kinder, this quote. The passages on which we may be tempted to sit in judgment have the shocking immediacy of a scream. To startle us into feeling something of the desperation which produced them. His point, we would not have access to the depths of evil emotionally. To the depths of injustice emotionally without that scream in the Psalms. They also require your imagination, and this tells us that God doesn't just want your brain waves. He wants all of you. So the Anglican poet, songwriter, priest, Malcolm Gwee, he has taught me a lot about the importance of imagination in the Christian life. He quotes Shakespeare. This is Shakespeare. He quotes Shakespeare. Imagination apprehends more than cool reason ever comprehends. Reason is vital. Our faith is rational. Amen? But only imagination apprehends or lays hold of or touches or grasps truth. It's very possible, maybe this is in your story, that you can affirm truths in your brain that you haven't touched them. More importantly, they haven't touched you. Well, the Psalms are a gift to you because the Psalms require your engagement and they engage you as well. There's a saying, if you can't teach a truth to a child, maybe you don't know the truth. I would argue the Psalms would say, if you can't sing this truth, do you really know it? It's one thing to confess. It's another thing to sing that confession. I think the Psalms also give us permission to struggle. How do you like remembering? There's editors in this room. I know who you are. Don't judge. The Psalms give you permission to struggle. So I think most of the time we approach the Psalms like we approach clothes in our closet. Don't we? What do I feel like today? What do I feel like wearing today? What best expresses how I feel today? Well, that is not the role of the Psalms, ultimately. Did you know that? They are not like clothes in our closet. They're there, you know, they're not there to be like just waiting for us to find the perfect one. That expresses how we feel that day. So oftentimes I'm like doing this. No, I don't feel vengeance today. <laughs> uh, I end up on like the same song every single day. You know, it's like the, the happy one. The unchallenging one. No, no. The Psalms are more like the cast that your doctor gives you for your program. Or the braces that the orthodontist gives you for your teeth that are growing sideways. The Psalms, in other words, shape us. 
They're certainly expressive, and there's certainly vehicles through which we can express how we are feeling in that moment. But ultimately, the Psalms shape our heart. They shape our emotions so that we begin to love, fear, all the things in ways that God would have us. In the words of Jack Collins, they're not just expressive, they are formative. The Psalms assume, okay? God assumes with the Psalms that you don't align with it. There's an assumption there, because that's how they work. That's what they're there for. It assumes that you struggle in this area with justice, for instance. So sing the justice song, Psalms. You struggle to express sadness over grief. Okay, so sing the lament songs. God knows you struggle to trust his care. Okay? Sing the psalms that point you to his care and point you to Jesus. They shape you. It's God's grace to you. So the question is, as we close, will you receive that gift? What if 2023 was the year of psalms for you? What if, as we learn the story as a church, the story of God, that's what we're doing, we're going through the entire Bible. What if, as we learn the story, we committed to singing the story? That's, after all, what the Psalms are. What if we committed to praying or engaging the Psalms every day and allow them to do their work? Wise traditions in the church do this. Some even have you reading and engaging and singing the psalms all the way through, all 150, every single month. That's 150 times 12. That's, I don't know, map majors. That's a lot. But talk about the shaping that could happen with that. What if we just simply said, if I read a psalm a day, and I didn't just read it in my brain, but I, but I actually, like, spoke it forth in my quiet room, or with my kids, or with my roommate? play an instrument? What if I compose a melody? A fresh one, a new one, or picked up old ones? This is a challenge. I think it's a good one, because what it is, is it's an invitation to experience God's truth, not just affirm it. Amen? Ultimately, it's an invitation to experience Jesus. I love how authors, Tim and Kathy Keller, call their book, their meditation on the Psalms, the Songs of Jesus. I love that. I love that title because it means two things. On the one hand, these are the songs that Jesus sang. What if we joined our voice with him? And number two, it means that the songs of Jesus, these psalms ultimately find their fulfillment and their embodiment in Jesus himself. As you sing the psalms, you will encounter the Lord in his grace. And so, Lord, we come now. And we accept this invitation. We accept this invitation to love you with all of who we are. We're excited that you give us this opportunity. And it's in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.